0: good morning, church. We'll be looking at that passage and really the rest of that chapter in a moment, and so you can keep your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 2. There were three men who were on a business trip together, and they shared a room on the top floor of a skyscraper hotel, 78 stories high. After a long day of meetings, they returned to the hotel, and they couldn't wait to get to their room and just call it a night. Unfortunately for them though, the elevator was not working and they were told it would be hours before it was up and running again and so they agreed to take the stairs. They came up with this plan to make their climb a little less painful. For the first 26 stories, one guy would crack jokes. For the second 26 stories, the second guy would tell happy stories. And then for the last 26 stories, the third guy would share some sad stuff. Well, the first 26 stories went by rather quickly, as Tom told one funny joke after another. And then, As they walked the second stretch of 26 stories, Jim shared several happy stories himself, and the climb actually didn't seem too bad. But then they had a few, Bill then had a few sad stories to share as they were on their final stretch of 26 floors. And about after an hour of this climbing, they were two stories away when Jim began his last sad story. He turned to the other two and said, okay, guys, here's my last sad story. I just remembered that I left my room keys in the car. (laughs) Now, doesn't that feel like life sometimes, though? It really does. Living in the real world can be downright exhausting, if not maddening. We think of of what it could be, and we're not there, far from it. See, dealing with what is, not what should be, is where we often find ourselves. The ideal is often at odds with reality. And the world really is made up of idealists and realists. In this room. There are those who lean toward idealism and others who are more bent on realism. I know there's a spectrum in there and that it may depend on the situation, but idealists see the possibilities. You're, you're a little more future-oriented. How many of you in this room tend to be more of an idealist than a realist? You can show you up your hands. You can actually participate. All right. Wow, it's even less than first Okay, now how many, with realists now, they deal more with present tense. They deal with what is in front of them. Realists are more concrete. Who are the realists here? My hand would go up. Now, no show of hands here, but how many of you are married to the opposite? <laughs> no, No. You, see, you, you couldn't follow instructions. <laughs> Same with first service, they didn't either. Now, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 2 is both for the idealist and the realist so if you're not there in your bibles look with me at isaiah chapter 2 in your bibles as we continue in our sermon series that addresses the question why are we here not why are we here in this room today though that may be part of it but why are we here why are we here why do we exist what is our purpose why are we here And that's what we're working on as we go through this book. And as we move from Isaiah chapter 1 into Isaiah chapter 2, the shift in mood um, seems rather abrupt. You can almost feel the tension between the real and the ideal. And we've seen the last two weeks as we've looked at chapter 1 that the people of Judah were in need of great repentance. They were going through the motions of worship. Their hearts had drifted from knowing God. And they were living in rebellion and hypocrisy and indifference to the injustices around them in the world. Now as we come to chapter 2, Isaiah gives a a poetic sermon of the glorious future for God's people. He paints a picture in the front end of this of the ideal. The realistic condition of what Israel had become stands in our memory, however, as we now see their glorious destiny. And it kind of causes us to wonder, how can this Israel become that Israel? How can this Israel, in this present state, as we're reading it here, become that Israel of what Isaiah speaks of here in Isaiah chapter 2? Now, Isaiah chapter 2 is carefully structured. It's, he's not, Isaiah's not meandering. I'm not going to get into all the parts of that, but it's, it's a very well-structured chapter. The chapter's set up in two parts, the ideal and the reality, The ideal and the reality. Verses 1 through 4, we have the ideal, which is meant to inspire us. Then verses 6 through 21, we have the reality, which is meant to kind of convict us a little bit. And then I'm going to end with an invitation in verse 22. All right, the ideal. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the ideal. And after the superscription here, the introduction of verse 1, that reminds us that this is what Isaiah saw... Concerning primarily the two southern tribes of Judah, so he's writing to. We pick it up in verse 2. Follow along, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains, it will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Now, what are the last days that Isaiah saw here? By the way, more literally, last days, that phrase is in the afterward of these days. is directing them to something in the future. It seems to point to Christ's second coming that we sang about earlier as the last days began the moment Christ came the first time. Now all the, the dominoes are put in place, if you will, ready to topple at that moment when Christ returns for his church. To what specifically Isaiah is speaking to here in these first four verses, we can only guess. And so I'm really not going to go down that road this morning. Whether or not here that that day will literally mean, as it's speaking of here, that the city of Jerusalem will physically be uplifted as the prophet Zechariah hints at elsewhere. We can be sure of this. Jerusalem will be the focal point from which all the nations, all the people of the world will be blessed. Peoples from all the earth will be drawn to God's righteous kingdom. Jerusalem will be the center for worldwide worship. There will be a day in which all nations will know that Yahweh God is the true God. It says, all the nations will stream to it, which is the idea of a spontaneous response to God's grace, that the gospel then has spread throughout the world. That's the picture. To what specific time frame isn't the point of seeing that God will have his day. Verse 3, many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, the Jacob. Of Jacob, he'll teach us his way so that we may walk in His paths. Now it's worthwhile to note that the mention of the mountain in, verse, in this verse, but also the mountain he mentions in verse two, it's really to emphasize that God alone will be exalted, God alone. In the days in which Isaiah lived, it was commonly believed that God's, little G now, God's, lived in the mountains. They lived in the mountains, closer to heaven, perhaps. That's what they were thinking was. Their gods lived in the mountains. And people in that day often located their shrines on hills and mountaintops. We see it in Greek mythology. Mountains, hills. And so when it speaks of the mountain of the Lord, well, God chose this, this measly little, unimpressive hilltop in the land of Israel to be the place where he should be worshipped. And this statement here, the mountain of the Lord, it's really taking a shot at all those gods, those false gods, to speak of one and only God, Yahweh God, who's greater than all their gods in the mountains. Because he is God of the mountain. He made the mountain. And it's really a slap in their face. Because that's where their gods lived. So, and, and, and we know what Isaiah didn't know. It was on the hill of Calvary that Jesus shed his blood. It was because of the cross that all people can be forgiven of their sins. And the gospel can now go out to all nations and all peoples. And the final and glorious consummation of all that Isaiah sees here will then be a reality. God will have his day. God will have his day when it will be evident to all that there's only one way, not many ways to heaven. He will have his day when he alone will be exalted. It begs the question, does he have that place of exaltation in your life right now? Does he? Notice what else he says of this day, verse 4. He says, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Now, won't that be nice? Because in this world, there's much war. are a lot of wars. In this world, there is much conflict. A young boy once went to his dad and asked, Dad, Dad, how do wars begin? Well, he answered, well, son, take the First World War. That began when Germany invaded Belgium. Immediately, his wife interrupted him and said, tell the boy the truth. It began when someone was murdered. The husband snapped back, are you answering the question or am I? Well, the wife walked off in a huff, slammed the door behind her, and when the dishes, you know, stopped rattling, there was an awkward silence. Well, the son broke the silence by saying, Dad, Dad, never mind. I think I know how they started. <laughs> right? Right? We have this conflict. We can't get along. And as long as sinners rub up against each other, there will be conflict. There will be a day when no petty issues will divide us. No strife, no divisions. There will be peace and we have a picture here of that ideal a future day when we won't need any national defense budget a future day when we will no longer need to prepare men and women for battle a future day when we have no need for united nations and i'm really restraining doing any editorial right now if you get my drift yeah We won't need any military equipment. War will be obsolete. And nobody is going to win the Nobel Peace Prize for it. It will come through Christ's work and his work alone. Isaiah gives us the ideal. It's a picture of perfect peace. World peace. This is what we all long for. This is the ideal we all long for. Whether whether you're an atheist or someone's a secularist or a Christian, we all want peace. We want this kind of world. This would be a world worth living in. Imagine. Imagine. There are no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Now listen, you can imagine this and imagine that all you want. It won't bring it to pass. You can visualize world peace and it won't bring it to pass. You can visualize it all you want. Just thinking about it won't cut it. The ultimate And only peace will come, first of all, when Jesus Christ is in control of your life. You then have a peace that surpasses all understanding. But number two, the world will will have peace when the Prince of Peace returns, Jesus Christ, and, and he blows all the governments away and he sets up his kingdom. Listen, there is no perfect form of human government. We've tried. (laughs) We've tried with monarchies. There have been autocrats that have tried to rule. We've tried it with democracy. Democracy is not the perfect form of government. Look at us. We're a mess. Man cannot govern himself without getting into problems and wars eventually. No form of human government over long periods of time have ever lasted. Historian, all of them have come to what? Destruction. Every major empire has come and gone. It's only when God reigns and there's a theocracy that man is in the right form of government and there'll be perfect peace and perfect harmony. Well, praise the Lord, that's coming someday. and It's prophesied here in Isaiah chapter 2. The glory of of the coming Messiah, a picture of the day he will reign when Israel's God will be exalted. There will be a day when the whole world will know that the religion of Israel is the religion. That Israel's God is the God. a day in which the world believes that there are many ways to heaven, there will be a day That it will be settled once and for all. That there's only one way for there's only one God. And it comes through Jesus Christ in order to get to God. One way. And all people on that day, all people will bend the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. Doesn't mean all will be saved. But they will all have to acknowledge That Jesus is Lord some will do that willingly and others will be forced to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and our task why are we here our task is to bring more and more people to that place where they willingly and joyfully call him Lord Will you call out to others as they say here, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Come and see this God who's changed my life. There's a day when we will enjoy and can enjoy perfect peace. But Isaiah now brings the people and us back to the little reality. What is it that prevents that peace from happening? Well, let's look at the reality here. Verse 5 is a hinge verse. He wants us to kind of inspire us to this. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So we come to the reality now. What is it that hinders peace today? Why uh, Why will that peace never be attainable in this world? Why can't we enjoy perfect peace in our relationships and in our church and in our homes? Well, Isaiah spends the rest of the chapter talking about that reality. The reality of what it is that keeps us from peace. What is it? What is it that makes peace in this world impossible? What is it that prevents peace from happening? One word. Pride. Pride. You don't have peace right now in your home? You don't have peace right now with other people? Take a step back and say, there might be some pride there. All right. He's going to go there. And often when we think of pride, we, we say something like, he's so full of himself. Or he, he, she's so full of herself. Notice Isaiah's language of full of, okay? I'm going to pick it up in verse 6. Be really good if you felt, followed along here. Verse 6 You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. Full of. It's worth noting that um, the people that Isaiah is dressing here is not the pagans. It's, he's not speaking to the people of the world. He is talking to the people of God who should know better, who are exchanging their true religion for a little hocus pocus kind of belief that was in the world. And little by little, over compromise, they're being squeezed into the world's mold, the world's way of thinking. And they're full of this magical thinking of their belief. They're full of superstitions. What else are they full of? Verse 7. Their land's full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. You know, no end to their treasures. You see, the more you have, the more self-reliant you can become. Full of wealth, it says. Full of possessions. They had, and, and they lost their sense of need for God. Boy, doesn't that happen. He goes on. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. And what that means is they were trusting in their own defenses to protect themselves. But do you see it here? Full of, full of, full of. And what's the reality of the people? They're full of a lot of things, but not full of God. They're full, but the reality is they're empty. And what's the typical response to any emptiness we find within ourselves? Well, in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, and you can jot the verse down and and look at it later for the context and everything else he's saying here. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, Jeremiah mentions two sins the people committed. And so in speaking for God, he says, My people have committed two sins. What are they? One, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, Two, they've dug for themselves their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. What's that saying? That when we forsake God, we're going to look to find that satisfaction somewhere else. When we reject God, the fountain of all satisfying living water, we will then turn to something else for that satisfaction. Whatever that might be for you, which is probably different than what it is for me. But we run that risk. We go, no, no, I don't really need God in my life. I'm going to chase and fill that emptiness within with something. And I'm going to keep chasing it. That's what he's talking about. And we can be filled with the wrong things. Trying to fill that emptiness inside. It only discover what? We remain empty. We can be filled with, with, with activities. We can be full of all the comforts of life. And we can be, whatever it is we're we're full of, we can can be all stuffed on this junk food that we aren't even hungry for the things of God. But what, what have you filled your life with? What have I filled my life with? What are you looking to for satisfaction right now? Is it cutting it? Tim Keller speaks to this when he says, Sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Now get this. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. And that's where Isaiah goes next in verse 8. It says verse 9 on the screen, but it's verse 8. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. There's a little sarcasm in there. They're bowing down to something they have made. They made it and go, I'm now going to bow down to this. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's absurd. It's not so funny when we actually do it though. The word for idols here means non-gods, no existence, uh, no reality behind them. It literally Um, idols here it means nothings nothings and so an idol is anything besides God himself that I need to be who I am something so I do not feel worthless now here's the tricky part even good things can become idols when we need them to establish our significance our meaning and our identity and you know one way that's telling to me for me that that that, that I'm 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 I have an idol in my life is when it's taken away from me and how I respond to that. I sulk or I I can't go on. What are you centering your life and your identity on right now? Your spouse? Partner? So you, you stop becoming over jealous and controlling? Might, might be your children. You gotta live your life through them. Might be your career. You might be centering your life and your identity on your possessions or your pleasures or your comforts or even some noble cause. Might be some title. The word to us this morning is don't drown your worth in them. In some shape or form, that idol really is one of self-exaltation, pride to stabilize ourselves, especially in the tough reality of life. Only when the Lord is exalted and the depth of your being that your insecurities are finally addressed. Only when we die to the emotional attachment to the things of this world and we by faith come alive to emotional uh, possession of God's promised future, something happens deep inside of us. Only when we set our hearts on God and value Him that we discover that God Himself is all we really need. It's there we can really know peace. And God wants that for you. It's only found in Him. To go the way of self exaltation and pride is dreadful. And that's what the rest of the chapter is all about. And you can read uh, these verses for yourself. I encourage you to do this later on. But let me just highlight a few of the verses. you get a flavor of what's going on here. Verse 10. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. Down in verse 19. Men will flee to caves and the rocks and to holes in the ground from dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He rises to shake the earth. Look at verse 21. They will flee to caverns and the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. What does Isaiah see here? To what is he referring? Well, it's actually two parts here. That there will be a day of future judgment when God will set the world right. But that day was brought forward in history on the cross of Jesus. That day of Christ coming to redeem all people was the first part. That first part had to happen before the second part could come of him coming again. The hill of Calvary was the ultimate, most important hill of all time. It's where Christ shed his blood on the cross. But, church, listen the Lord of hosts has a day. There will be a day when people want to hide from the terror of the Lord. You know, it's not easy to read this. But here's the reality of those who run from God, of those who refuse to humble themselves before God. We see the terror of the people. And I ask the question, why does Isaiah want us to see this? I mean, it certainly creates a a greater sense of God's majestic power, does it not? But why does Isaiah want us to see this reality of many on the day of God's wrath? To freak us out? To instill this terror in our hearts? The day of the Lord is coming. What emotions are stirred within you when you hear that? And when you consider that God knows everything about you, and will come to expose that pride in your heart, it produces terror and fear in you, right? You're going to want to hide The holy, perfect God sees everything in me that no one else sees. That's terrifying to me. And like Isaiah, we saw in the first week, Isaiah chapter 6, when confronted with the holiness of God, we can only cry out what? Woe to me. It's terrifying. But church, followers of Jesus Christ, listen. We no longer need to be in a fearful terror of what God can do hear that. We do not need to hide from God in shame. Why? Because Jesus has taken all the wrath, all the punishment, all the guilt, all the shame of your sin and mine. Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, He says, you have turned to God from idols to serve the the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. Now get this, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus has delivered you, follower of Jesus, from the wrath of God that is to come. All that terror of the day of the Lord because of Christ is what? Removed. Our emotional disposition then toward God is not terror. Reverent fear, sure, but not terror and dread, but peace. Romans 5.1 says we have peace with God. Now and then. Do you have peace with God? But for those who are trusting in themselves rather than God, that day will be dreadful. And here we are. 2023. Things are just kind of moving right along the way it is. And we kind of see all these people doing what they want to do. And we kind of go, ah, this is driving me insane. Is anything ever going to change? Listen, we are assured that, to know that, that there will be a day when all the, all the pride, all the haughtiness, all the big shots, all the self-reliance, all the self-dependence, self-worship, and all the self-exaltation will be brought down. We don't say that with great delight. It ought to grieve us. But there is a word of hope there too for us. That day will come. Look at verse 9. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Verse 11. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 12. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. You see a theme here? Verse 17, the arrogance of man will be brought low. The pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. And what's striking to me about all this is the search for total self-sufficiency will end. The greatness of God will fill the whole earth and all those who are full of themselves will be reduced to How humbling it will be for man to realize he is not the measure of all things. He is not the center of the universe. British cartoonist, Ashley Brilliant, known for his, uh, his one-liners, said, All I ask of life is a constant and exaggerated sense of my own importance. <laughs> really? That sounds freeing. See, pride is being impressed with what we've done than what God has done. Listen, stop regarding yourself so highly. Stop worrying so much about what people think or what you are to others. Are you full of yourself? Am I full of myself? What areas can I be full of myself? It's been said, one who is wrapped in himself makes for a pretty small package. Yeah. Yeah, we puff ourselves up. We think we're big shots. Sportscaster and former baseball great Ralph Kiner tells the following story. He says, after the season in which I hit 37 home runs, the most in the league that season, I went to uh, the Pittsburgh uh, Pirates general manager, Branch Rickey, asking for a raise or else I might go elsewhere. He refused. With great boast, I said, I led the league in homers. I reminded him. The manager asked, and, and, and where did we finish in the standings? Last place, I replied. Well, Branch Ricky said, we can finish last place without you. <laughs> Move on. We think we're hot stuff. You need me. You need me. Really? Those who exalt themselves will be brought down, and those who are brought down, it says he'll lift up. There's going to be a day when everyone will be humbled by God. Isn't it wise then? To humble ourselves now. It was on that cross that your pride and my pride hung Jesus there. It was on that cross that your selfishness and my selfishness hung Jesus there. And when we see rightly what Jesus did, we are humbled. But when we we see that, that that on the cross, Jesus took what I deserve my punishment it humbles me it ought to when i survey the wondrous cross isaac watts wrote on which the prince of glory died my richest gain i count but loss and pour contempt on my pride because of what Jesus has done for us, we can face the reality of our pride. We don't need to hide. We don't need to excuse it. We don't need to push it away. We don't need to deflect it on others. There's no peace in that. We can confront it for what it really is and say, yeah, there's pride here. And pride is so subtle, isn't it? I, I mean, we can spot it in others and miss seeing it in ourselves. And so I ask the question, how is pride being manifested in my life lately? How is pride being manifested in your life. What shape does pride take in you? What does pride look like for you? It's probably self-something. You can fill in the something part. Self-something. It might be self-love. It could be self-loathing. It could be self-will. It could be self-protection. It could be self-reliance. Self-something. What is it? God wants us to see the ideal day, a future day, so we can change how we're living in the present. Here's the bottom line. Only when we come alive to God's promised future, we dethrone our idols, and the Lord alone is exalted within us. Only when we come alive to God's promised future, we dethrone our idols, and the Lord alone is exalted within us. I go to the invitation. We're going to hit this quickly here. It's one verse. One verse. Knowing what's going to happen to all those who exalt themselves, Isaiah urges them now, verse 22. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils, meaning he'll stop breathing and it's over. Of what account is he? Now, a theme that we were going to see as we make our way through Isaiah is this matter of what are we trusting in? It's going to come up again and again. Is it, are we trusting in what man can do? If we just get these right pieces that fall into place, we're good. I mean, do we, do we fear people? Whose approval do you crave the most? Whose attention do you feel you need? Whose disapproval crushes you? Fearing man is not the pathway to peace. It's not. Proverbs 29, 25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. What's the invitation? Trust God. He has your future, and He has you in the present. He wants us to trust in Him alone. What area do you need to do that right now? Can, can you trust him with it? What do you need to let go of in order to place your trust in him alone? Because you see, it's pride. It is pride when we hold on to something that we think we need to have in my life in order to make it. And we hold on to it. And it's preventing us from trusting in God. We're holding on to it. That's not peace. That is... That is Bondage. In the area of South Africa, and you might have heard this story before. There are melon traps, melon traps used to capture the wily ring-tailed monkey. Legend has it, legend has it, that a small boy devised the ingenious means of catching the monkeys after having accidentally witnessed a ferocious fight between two ringtails over broken melon. It appeared as if they were willing to die for the delicate seeds. And so the boy, he cut a small hole uh, just big enough for a monkey's hand to go right kind of right in the side of a melon. And then he sat off in the clearing and watched. And within moments, legend says, uh, this ring tailed spotted the melon and he jumped down to investigate and finding the hole, he stuck his hand into the melon, grabbing a handful of seeds. Now he had a problem either drop the seeds and get his hand out or leave his hand in the melon holding on to the seeds and his hand is stuck. The hole was not sufficient to allow the hand now bulging with seeds to pass through. The boy would then step forward and toss a net over the monkey. Even then, the monkey would not release the seeds. So I asked what are you holding on to so tightly that it now owns you? I got it. I can do this myself. I've got, I have this. God comes along and says, can you release that and trust me? Because when we can't, that's pride. And there's no peace in that. The pathway to peace is through Humility. It's letting go of what you think is the way to satisfaction and meaning. I ask, will you let go and trust God with your future and with your present? What do you need to let go of? What do I need to let go of? Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words. You might wonder at first pass how in the world does this speak to us and it most certainly does and I just pray that we can get our mind around and our hearts around what it is you're asking of us here and what it is we need to release so that we're in a better position to trust you with it rather than hold on as tightly as we can show us what that is for us I pray in Jesus name amen